I am so happy to be worshiping with you today. It's just kind of ridiculous. <laughs> it seriously is. I was up half of the night anticipating worship today. That does not happen all the time, but it did happen last night, and I am feeling so happy that you are here to worship. And I'm not talking, attend Sunday service with me. I am so happy you are here to worship God in this place with me. That is the joy that's filling me today, this joy of honoring and knowing that yes place in me that says, yes, I do love God, and yes, I want to go and feel that love open up, and yes, I want to hear that yes come back to me from the God who says yes. That God says yes, yes, yes. And there we are. We get to come and worship in this place. I really invite you to say yes this morning, to just really come into that worship place. And I thought about that. I was, knew I was going to do that invitation this morning, and I was remembering that I was not raised in the church, and I wasn't always familiar with how we do church and I remember going to church, and people would talk about worshiping and worship God. And to be really honest, I didn't know what to do. Like, people seemed to be very clear. Let's worship. And I wasn't really clear. Like, is that praying? Is that the worshiping? Or is, is the singing? Because if it depends on my singing, <laughs> maybe I won't be worshiping so much. Uh, you know, but what's the worship part? What do you... And I, and I didn't ask anyone because I felt like it was stupid. And I just came to realize, you know, the worship part, the worship part is all of that or none of that. What it is is the thing in us that says, yes, I'm going to intentionally say yes to seeking the presence of God right now. And I'm going to do that on faith because I'm not always so sure if something's going to happen but I'm going to say yes anyway. You know, it's faith, as we often say, not certainty for a reason. And so we just do that faithful thing, and we say, I'm going to say yes, I'm going to intentionally seek the presence of God, I'm going to just do that thing right now and just open myself and be available and say yes. And the really amazing thing is, in my experience, is that when we do this, faith is always affirmed by the yes of the God that we come to realize said yes to us first. To us first. We come to realize that's, that's how we even got that thing in the first place that brought us here. So if I say anything today, you know, and talk, and I'm going to talk a little bit, I'm excited about the scripture, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but if you're not listening to any of that, it's fine. Just worship. Just worship. Let the noise, let whatever happen around. But if you can just keep saying yes to God and experiencing the affirmation of God's yes to you, then all good, all good. And I just, uh, you know, think about what it is to come in a place where you're maybe not sure how to do it or feel welcome. I love the gospel scripture for today. It's something that may be familiar to you. It's fairly frequently spoken of, this woman with the alabaster jar, let's make it new. Let it be new. Let's think about it for a minute. This woman could hardly have been less comfortable. 
She could hardly have been less welcome, less invited, less accepted in what she does in this gospel, in this place. Let's just be very clear. During this time, men and women were supposed to keep social distance from each other. It was not appropriate to mix in social settings. Further, this is a dinner party being hosted by Simon the Pharisee. Uh, that means a religious leader of his time, someone of some stature in the religious community. He is throwing a formal dinner party, inviting an honored guest, a man who is reputed to be a holy man, a special guest of honor. This, this dinner is open space in a very uh, formal, honorable, social way. And it's attended by men, largely, who have been invited because they have some standing in the community. That's the setting. And into that place, picture it, into that place, this woman comes who hasn't been invited. She has heard about this gathering. And she's heard that Jesus is there, and she comes. She knew what she was doing. You cannot be held in disregard in society without knowing it. They all knew she didn't belong there. She surely knew it. But she came. And she didn't just slip in the side and try and listen to what Jesus might say. She went into the middle of this gathering of honorable, reputable men who she knew would think she was out of place and out of line. And she went to the middle and fell at the feet of the honored guest. In the middle, what a spectacle. She drew attention to herself in the most spectacular and astonishing way. And when she's there at the feet of Jesus, she does things that are completely inappropriate. She begins publicly weeping and taking her hair and anointing his feet, bending down with her face near his feet. And with her tears, she is wiping his body. She is touching his body. And then she takes this ointment and she starts to anoint him. This anointing of another's body is the most intimate of activities in this social environment. This is completely inappropriate. It is appalling. And Simon the Pharisee is shocked. What is going on? Who is it? Oh, oh. Who is, oh. And he sees what's happening, and he is upset by it, and he is outraged that this woman who should not be here has made herself present in his space with his guest. And then he moves very quickly from a place of who does she think she is to a place of and who does he think he is because he's observing that Jesus is not responding with the appropriate outrage. He is not drawing back. He is not putting her in her place. He seems to be comfortable with what she's doing. And so Simon says to himself, I thought this was supposed to be a holy man, 
but clearly he is not. Because I know what holy men look like, and I know what holiness does, and it withdraws, it pulls away, it recoils from the reach of the sinner. That's real righteousness. And surely this man cannot be righteous, for he seems to think it is fine that this sinner is being intimate with him in this way. Jesus is aware of Simon's reaction. But instead of responding with an argument, a justification, explaining himself, trying to change Simon's mind about holiness and who he is and to convince him of his righteousness, Jesus does a very Jesus thing. And he just asks a question that gets right to the heart of the matter. And he says to his host, I have something I'd like to say to you. And his host says, speak, teacher. And so Jesus proceeds, and it's a very odd thing that he says. He says, hmm, consider this. If there was a creditor to whom people owed a great deal of money, and two people came, one owed some, one owed a lot, and the creditor released them from their debt, forgave their debt, let it go. Who would love him more? Bless you. Who would love him more? And Simon's a little confused. And he says, uh, I suppose it would be the one that was released of the greater debt. Probably thinking, what is he talking about and why is he asking me this? And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. And then odder still, he just leaves that there. And he turns to the woman who is still at his feet. He indicates the woman, see this woman? And then he starts to speak about her. And he says, I came to this place that isn't even her home, and she has welcomed me here. She has reached out to me. She has tended to my needs. She has cared for me. She has touched me. She has even cherished me, anointing me. She has given me great welcome and care. And he observes to his host, this is your home, but you have not provided water for me to wash with. You have not reached out to me in this way. You have not given me this particular kind of hospitality at all. He simply observes what has happened. And then he says, you see this woman here? Her sins have been many, but she has been forgiven. Her sins have been forgiven her, and her sins have been many, and so she loves greatly. Her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she loves greatly. And then he says to the woman, your faith has made you well, or your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It is a startling 
piece of interaction. What is he to make of this? I'm gonna draw our attention right to this moment because this is the incredibly good news of the gospel today. And there are two things I would like us to be very aware of in this interaction. And it's important to pay attention to the text. So if you're worshiping, worship on. But if you're listening, <laughs> if you're listening, then let's look at the sequence in the text because it's really important. She didn't come and fall down at Jesus' feet. This woman did not start doing all these things for him. And then he says, woman, you are now forgiven. The sequence of the text is pretty clear. Jesus came into that space. To our knowledge, there was no interaction with the woman. She already heard he was there and sought him out. What is it that compelled her to do this outrageous thing, we ask? What is it? Something compelled her to come forward and fall at his feet, and I would suggest Jesus names it when he says, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Somehow, she has known, perceived, and received the communication that she is forgiven. He says, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, therefore her love is great. She has fallen at my feet with great love because she has been forgiven. Not, she fell at my feet, gave me great love, therefore I forgive her. This is a very important thing. To underline this point, Jesus then says to her these words, your sins are forgiven. He is affirming, he is confirming, he is reaffirming the truth that already exists, that her sins have already been forgiven. He is stating the truth that has already happened. And then he says to her, the thing which has saved you is your faith. Amen. He doesn't say you were saved because you asked my forgiveness. He said your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What faith is it that she had? She had faith enough to walk in that room. She had faith enough to seek him out, faith enough to fall at his feet. She had faith that is born of the love that welled up in her that the promise that he was walking around making and teaching and talking about was real. Jesus had been walking the countrysides and through the cities saying, turn, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is yours right now. You are God's children. It was outrageous what he was saying, but she had faith that it was not about who she was, but it was about whose she was that mattered. And she had faith in that. And she fell at his feet in that faithfulness. With an overwhelming sense of love, she drew near to the promise that whose she was was already established and it was not dependent on anything about who she was. It was simply dependent that she would be willing to step forward on faith and reach out. 
And Jesus says, yes, this is what saved her. She had faith to reach out for the love and forgiveness that has already been given her, and therefore, she has now been saved. This is very important to understand, and if you think I'm just trying to set this up in this way to make a feel-good sermon, let's really look at this thing again for a moment. I think it's precisely what Jesus is trying to make the point about. That's why he tells that funny story. Right? Right before it, he says, there is a creditor, and people owe him a lot of money. And they come to him, and the creditor releases their debt. That's the whole of his story. He does not say they come and they negotiate, they beg, they argue, they grovel at his feet. It doesn't say he forgave some of the large debt, most of it, and said if you make arrangements to pay off the rest, you'll be okay. Nothing. Nothing. Equal release to both of them of all that they owed. Not because of how much they owed or how little, not because of what they said or did, not because they even asked, but because of who he was as the creditor. He made a choice to release their debt. End of story. And then he says, and look at this woman. The point he is making is that the forgiveness has been given. That's the word, forgiveness, for, before, given, given before. Forgiveness means that which is given before. The release had been made, the love felt forward, she came in faith and fell at his feet and she knew the truth of the promise that had already been made. It is shocking. It is appalling and startling and difficult even then because what do the people respond in the presence? Those who are already at table, by the way. Those who are already welcomed. Those who are already part of. What do they say? Who does he think he is? That's what they say. They say, who is this who even forgives sins? They are astonished and appalled. Now, they've already heard he's been making miracles happen. Okay, we'll go with miracles. He's a healer. Good. They've heard that he's been teaching and preaching in the streets and in the synagogues, sometimes even challenging their religious leaders. But okay, okay, we can do this. We'll work with it. He's a teacher. He's a preacher. Okay. But this, he presumes to offer release unconditionally, no matter who the person is? Who is this? And what is that called, that unconditional release, no matter who we are? What's the word? It's called grace. Grace. Who is this? It's the one who bears grace. And it is appalling and shocking and difficult for them to swallow. And it has continued to be painful and difficult for reasons that we can only touch on. The most 
difficult conversations that I've had over the past number of months, emails, conversations, are people who say to me things like, you know, I, I like what you have to say a lot and stuff, and, you know, and kind of laugh, um, but it seems like you, you believe that Jesus loves everybody. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think that's the point. I do. And I get a little feisty about this because there have been some conversations that haven't been so neutral where I have actually been, it's been suggested to me that my believing that Jesus loves everybody and came for everybody is somehow a lukewarm faith that somehow my believing that Jesus has opened the grace door for all people is indicative that I am less Christian, that I am less faithful to the Jesus Christ who I proclaim my Lord and Savior. Because it's too indiscriminate, it's too watered down, it's too open. And this is what I know, is that this is the Jesus in the gospel I read. This is the Jesus that has continually been proclaimed through disciples throughout time who have struggled like we do with this notion of unconditional grace. With the idea that God's love for us is not dependent on who we are it is dependent on who God is, and God has proclaimed who God is through the person of Jesus Christ, who came forward to live among us and welcome at his feet those who have already been forgiven, and the only thing that awaits is that we claim that forgiveness and know the love that will overflow our hearts because he will affirm the truth of our welcome in God. People seem to think that if God welcomes everybody, then we don't need to do anything. Maybe, maybe not. All I know is if God welcomes me, I want to do everything to proclaim that good news. I don't do it because I have to. I don't do it because I need to, to prove my worthiness. I do it because it is such good news. I am awed by the grace of God and how that has saved my life. And so I proclaim it not to earn God's grace, but because I already have it. And this is the gospel that is being proclaimed through the scriptures that we have today. Paul and Peter in Galatians, this is the argument they're having. This is hardcore gospel reading, okay? They're having a fight. Paul is writing a letter. Paul and Peter, we're talking the big guns in the church. Okay, both men who are Jews who have been trained in the traditional religious uh, ways of their time, who know the law, who are proper in their religious experience, but both have also been touched and transformed by the presence of Christ in their life. And they've both been touched and transformed in such a way that they feel called to respond and they believe that they are called to respond to the Gentiles 
Now, we just use these words, we don't, they don't mean much to us now, but let's just get real. This is saying the people who are righteously faithful have been called to the sinners, to the people who are not religious, who are damned. And they've been called by this grace of Christ to go forward to them and say, you too are loved. You too are loved. You too are loved. You, it's, oh, it's hard for them to do, but they're doing it until Peter starts to change his position a little bit. And he starts saying, yeah, the Gentiles are loved too, but, but they need to get circumcised. And they need to do a couple other things that we Jews already do just to get in the right place so they can receive this grace that's for everybody. And Paul's having none of it. Because Paul says, I mean, no ifs, ands, or buts. He says, it either is grace or it's not. Grace is either unconditional love or it is not grace. The whole point is you can't earn it. It's given. The whole point is it's not dependent on who you are or aren't. It's dependent on God alone. We receive it by faith, not by what we do or don't do, not by whether we're circumcised or not, not by whether we've joined this church officially or not, not by whether or not we read this scripture correctly or not. We don't earn it any kind of way. God either gave it or God didn't. What we need to do is know that we'll step out on faith to try and receive that truth and experience it being affirmed in us or not. That's what we're to do. It's hard stuff for this argument that they're having about the future of the church. And Paul essentially says, look, if anyone would be damned, it would be me. Because I've been trying to kill these Christians and persecute this Christ, and I, before God, am full of blame. Yet Jesus Christ knocked me over, blinded me, set me apart, gave me sight, gave me new knowledge, gave me new life, and proclaimed himself in me. This is my lived experience. And so, if you're right, Peter, you're saying that my lived experience, that Christ came to me, I wasn't asking, I wasn't earning, I wasn't behaving well, I wasn't even looking, and Christ came to me and changed my whole life. If that's not grace, what is? That is the one thing I have come to proclaim, and if you say I cannot proclaim it like that, you are taking away the grace of Christ in my own life. What do I have to give then? If you say that my unconditional loving message is something that is a sin against this Jesus, then you are telling me that the Jesus I know is supporting that sin. It is an outrageous piece of scripture. And I will just leave it there before us right now to contemplate that he says to Peter, if you've been freed, and then you reach down and you pick up little bits and pieces of the things that used to hold you in bondage again. You just lost the experience of the grace that was already given you. If you've been freed and you start picking up little bits and pieces of the thing that used to hold you in bondage, you will not experience your freedom anymore. This is a word for us people. If we are freed by God who loves us as we are, let us be free then and not nullify the grace that has been given. It is not because of what we do. It is not because of what we are. It is because of God and what God has already done 
in Jesus Christ that has saved us and lifts us up and makes us free. Who is this who even forgives sins? It is Jesus Christ who has claimed you as his own already. Let us worship and rejoice. Amen.